In U.S. working forests, or forest land carefully managed to provide a steady renewable supply of wood for daily use, more than 1 billion trees are planted every year, and forestry experts protect and manage hundreds of millions of acres. Working forests have been sustainably managed for decades. How? It's simple. They plant more trees than they harvest. Learn more at workingforestsinitiative.com. Hi, we're Visible. We're the wireless company with nothing to hide. Seriously. Hidden fees? We don't have them. Annual contracts? Not our thing. Great wireless on just one line? Now that's more like it. Get unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon for just $25 a month. Taxes and fees included. That's right. $25 a month? Every month. Sorry, hidden fees. We're just not that into you. Sometimes the choice is just Visible. Switch today at Visible.com. Rate with service on the Visible plan. For additional terms and network management practices, see Visible.com. <laughs> okay. Hello, welcome to another episode of the Weeds on the Vox Media Podcast Network. I'm Matthew Iglesias here with Dara Lind, Jane Coaston. Uh, we are going to talk about something that came up at Michael Cohen's testimony uh, this past week. We are not going to talk about the intricacies of the various investigations into Donald Trump because we had Andrew here recently to do that. Um, but there was this sort of weird sidebar about racism. Yeah, like the most dramatic moment of the hearing in the hearing room, I would say, like the most tense moment between members of the committee was right. not about Michael Cohen at all. It was about like whether Donald Trump is a racist and then whether Representative Mark Meadows, uh, who is the former head of the House Freedom Caucus and a close Trump ally, uh, is a racist. So let me let me try to recap what happened. So Cohen, as part of his repentant shtick, like really like threw the kitchen sink in, in terms of his like anti-Trump stuff. And then included in his pre-released opening statement testimony, he said he was going to say stuff about how Donald Trump is racist. And that prompted Mark Meadows, who was trying to position himself as like a Donald Trump, a leading Donald Trump defender, uh, to bring to the committee Lynn Patton, who had worked for the Trump Organization for a number of years uh, as some kind of event planner um, and now has been slotted into a role at HUD um, and is somebody who, you know, knows Trump, has worked with Trump, who Trump obviously um, promoted into a government position she does not seem uh, obviously qualified for. So clearly he he has some admiration for her uh, or desire to help her out. And Meadows's point in all this was, I guess, that you could see that Trump is not a racist because he knows this black woman. Well, I mean, more specifically that, like, he didn't quote her directly, but he paraphrased her as saying that as, you know, he didn't actually say explicitly that as a black woman, uh, but he said that she, as the daughter of someone who grew up in Birmingham, Alabama, would never work for a racist. So it wasn't quite a like Donald Trump can't be racist. He knows this black woman. It's Donald Trump can't be racist. This black woman says he's not racist. Right. And I, I, I just want to add in a side point that this like, uh, you know, her father is like raised in Birmingham. Her father is epidemiologist Curtis L. Patton, who is now a professor emeritus at Yale. Wow. Dara wrote about this a little bit, and I have also the flattening of 
African-Americans that often takes place in these conversations where it's like, ah, yes, this African-American person, her father's from Alabama, as if like that would mean something. Well, you know, her father's an epidemiologist. I sure. mean, yeah, this is this is one of the many ways. And there were so, so many ways in the, which this was a weird, screwed up interaction. But, but, right. I, but I need to get to where it got contentious, yeah, 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 right? Yeah, yeah. right? Yes. So, look, Republicans offered a lot of lame arguments on a lot of subjects over the course of this hearing. It wasn't that noteworthy. Um, And then Democrats asked some questions designed to further elicit what Michael Cohn was talking about. I I think it is worth emphasizing that this sort of naivete issue was was kind of on both, both sides' foot throughout this, because the point that Michael Cohn was making about Trump was not that, like, Donald Trump has helped perpetuate systematic sources of disadvantage for African-Americans. It was that he, like, made disparaging remarks about black people on two or three different occasions. So, like, he said that one specific example was one time Trump said to him, can you even name a country that's run by a black person that isn't a disaster? Um, And this was when Obama was president. And... So, okay, that's racist. I actually think he's like the way that Cohen said it was, can you name a country run by a black person that isn't a shithole, which is, you know, particularly relevant to anyone who remembers like the shithole countries moment. Although, of course, a lot of these things raise questions about the reliability of, you know, hearsay testimony from like 10 years ago. Right. Like, I mean, like, say it had happened. Right. right? Like, okay, the insight here is that Trump once cracked a joke where the joke wasn't just that he thinks Barack Obama was a bad president, but that the nature of Obama being a bad president is that he's going to make the United States like a poor African country. So, okay, like, yes, like that, I guess, is racist. Um, It is racist. It's also not, I actually think, like, particularly like cut to the bone of what grievances with Donald Trump and race are. And and this is why you get into a zone where Meadows's counterpoint is like, no, see this black lady who says she wouldn't work for a racist person, right? So we're like basically in a debate about whether or not Donald Trump makes racist jokes. Right. right. And then and then Rashida Tlaib like kicked it up a notch in which she in her line of It was barely questioning. Um, But at the end of the hearing said that to sort of tokenistically trot out a black person for her testimony to somehow obviate the like entire experience was itself a form of racism. Right. I mean, the, the the term that she used was to like to use a black woman as a prop, which like I actually saw a former Hill staffer tweet about this in in a way that actually makes a certain amount of sense. Like, you know, their Hill staffers are used to their members asking for like, can we get, can we print out a big chart that I can yes. use? Can we like have some kind of blown up photograph of Michael Cohn with the word liar on it that I can and, just have behind me during my testimony, which is which actually- Which they, they had. Which they, they had. did. Yeah. yeah. So like to, you know, the way that Patton was being- indicated was kind of in a similar vein. It was not like she wasn't actually getting a statement read into the record. She wasn't herself testifying. She wasn't speaking. She was being pointed to mutely in the same way that someone might point to a chart. And like, when you think about it that way, yeah, that that does seem kind of dehumanizing. Right. And I think that we've seen this a lot because Meadows' responses, which also, I'm sure, 
Matt, we are going to get to this. A lot of people mentioned um, after this all happened, brought a video from 2012, in which Mark Meadows jauntily wandered into birtherism regarding President Barack Obama and talking about sending him back to Kenya. And his response was, one, I was running at the time. And two, I don't have a racist bone in my body. And we've talked about this before. There's this idea that either if an African-American person says you're not racist, you're not racist. And that racism is something that you that needs to be this like internal driver for you to have done something racist. Right. This is this is getting ahead of ourselves a little bit like slightly. So, right. Yes. Yes. Sorry. So so <laughs> Ayanna Presley, who's another House freshman on the committee, had actually had had also brought this up later in the hearing, like she actually turned it into a question. She asked Michael Cohen, like, do you believe that someone who has a essentially who was like, do you believe that someone can have a black friend and also be a racist? Um, and then Slave made her remarks. And then Mark Meadows blew up. Right. And there's if you you know, if you look at the clip, there's a lot of talking over and a lot of questions about decorum. Essentially, Meadows interpreted what Slave was saying as an individual attack on his character, which like individual references to other members of the committee wouldn't be allowed under like congressional decorum rules. And so was asking to have her statement struck from the record. And so she had to clarify that she was talking about the the act being racist, not him personally. And then Mark Meadows and Elijah Cummings, who's the chairman of the House Oversight Committee, had essentially a colloquium about how Mark Meadows also has black friends and is not a racist. And, and the exact same thing. Essentially, Cummings, to get the hearing back on track, did the exact thing where he, like, vouched for Mark Meadows. Right. 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 Like, they do appear to genuinely be friends in the way that a lot of members of Congress who've been in Congress for a certain amount of time, like, have a certain rapport and respect for each other. Right. Like, Meadows yeah. Meadows basically had Cummings validate him, Cummings being himself black. Um, and Meadows was like, you know, you know, we work together really well. I wouldn't, you know, that 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 itself is proof that I don't. And And Cummings, for his part, like, vindicated this and said, yeah, and I can see because I know you because we're friends. I can see how painful this is for you. And I assure you that she didn't mean that. Like, he is absolutely validating Meadows' experience in that moment. And, you know, without wanting to psychologize anything, it was a very interesting dynamic of the difference between this younger, non-Black woman of color, uh, Rashida Tlaib, you know, kind of being willing to walk right up to the edge, not, you know, and not calling Mark Meadows a racist, but like being willing to say something that he was going to interpret that way. And Elijah Cummings being like, no, I know it's very, very painful for you to have your racial equality bona fides question. Right. Well, I mean, you know, I think to to really delve into the dynamic there, right? So it's like Rashida Tlaib is of uh, Arab-Palestinian descent. She represents, however, a district that is majority black. She is a freshman member. So there's a very real chance. She ran against multiple different African-American candidates mm -hmm. and wound up winning narrowly. Um, so there's a very real chance that she will lose a primary to a single black challenger, right? So it is very strongly in her interest to like have no flank of black identity that can be turned against her, right? 
Elijah Cummings is like the opposite of that. He's been in Congress for a very long time. He is African-American. He represents a majority black seat that he has held for a very long time. He's also a very senior House Democrat. So like for him, the imperative is to operate in a sort of mostly white congressional leadership space, like very secure that African-American voters in Baltimore are going to keep sending him to Congress. But the question is, like, will Nancy Pelosi and Steny Hoyer and other Democratic committee chairs see him as, like, a power player who should be setting strategy? Because this whole Cohn hearing wasn't just, like, a random thing that happened, right? right? Like, this is kind of the centerpiece of what House Democrats are doing. So, like, the question of, is Elijah Cummings a shrewd political tactician who is making the message points that we, the Democratic Party, want versus are we getting uh, derailed into... uh, a debate about the definition of racism, yeah. you know, is relevant. And, and like we in are the doing... oversight con- uh, context, like the day before the Cone hearing, uh, the oversight committee issued its first subpoenas of the Congress and they made a big deal out of saying we didn't have to do this in a bipartisan manner, but we did anyway. Right. The idea that having that, you know, continued bipartisan action specifically on oversight is possible right. is something that clearly they see as key to their perceived legitimacy. Right. No. So we on the weeds are not on message servants of the Democratic Party and are doing contrary to uh, <laughs> no, but I mean, beliefs. but I mean, this is the point. Like, we are now going to do what Elijah Cummings did not want to do <laughs> right. and let this Michael Cohen hearing get derailed off the topic of Donald Trump's fitness right. for office into um, super woke. The idea of stuff. the yeah, the idea of, of whether <laughs> of like racist bones versus racist acts, right? Um, exactly, and I think that that's something. I've written about before, and this is kind of this ongoing phenomenon that we in kind of American culture at the moment, there's been kind of this defining down of what racism is. So that you have people, I wrote about this uh, when I wrote about Steve King, that it took Steve King saying the actual words white nationalist and white nationalism and saying like, what's so bad about that for people to be like, hang on a second, when he was like palling around with Faith Goldie and going on with people with cantaloupe calves um, for years. And I think we see this a little bit Saying that someone is racist or has engaged in racism is considered an insult. Like that it's like, oh, that was very mean of you to say. Not very terrible of that person to have engaged in racism or racist behavior. Okay, let's yeah. let's let's take a break and then yes. and then let's delve into this. Support for the weeds comes from not another politics podcast from the Harris School of Public Policy. With the constant news cycle, there's a lot of noise out there. Opinions are plastered all over social media, pundits are throwing out hot takes without any sort of context, and it's only getting worse as we dive farther into election season. We know that if you're listening to us at The Weeds, you're looking to cut through all this. And if you like this show, you might like Not Another Politics Podcast. Not Another Politics Podcast is produced by the University of Chicago Harris School of Public Policy. They want to take a research and data approach to analyzing hot-button issues and offer perspectives that go beyond the headlines. They cover a wide variety of topics in their episodes, but a few recent episodes that you can listen to include a deep dive into why women are underrepresented in U.S. politics or whether or not we can believe political surveys. You can listen and subscribe today at harris.uchicago.edu slash nap. That's N-A-P-P. Thank you. 
In U.S. working forests, or forest land carefully managed to provide a steady renewable supply of wood for daily use, more than 1 billion trees are planted every year, and forestry experts protect and manage hundreds of millions of acres. Working forests have been sustainably managed for decades. How? It's simple. They plant more trees than they harvest. Learn more at workingforestsinitiative.com. So when I was writing about this and kind of, and using yeah. your article uh, pretty heavily, I actually struggled a little bit not to just paraphrase you a bunch and specifically with the term insult, racist as insult, which I think is really, really insightful, but in a way that I want to unpack a little bit more, right? right? Like the reason that racist as insult rather than as just a neutral adjective, like the why that's such a useful way to describe it is that generally when you label things, you're trying to understand them better. You're like using that label as a way to, you know, as a way to kind of categorize them, examine them. When you're saying to someone, hey, that is a misinformed or, you know, undersensitive way to look at it. In theory, what you're supposed to, what, you know, the intention of that is for them to kind of think again and reconsider and kind of gain more information and sympathy. When racist is seen as exclusively an insult, it shuts down conversation instead, right? It's like the response is either, oh, you don't have any real arguments, so you're just calling me a racist, you're just engaging in character attacks, or, you know, on the other side, if you're a racist, then like there's no place for you in the public sphere or any of that. There's an understanding kind of throughout the political spectrum that to call someone a racist means to delegitimize them and that like that is something that should be, you know, if you're on the receiving end of that, like frustrated and resisted, not something that is that is actually being used to invite a conversation. Well, the problem is that like it's that gets extended to people not just being called a racist, but use of use of the term racist or racism, right. as we exactly saw with the slave thing where she said verbatim, a racist act, and it got taken as saying you are a racist. Well, so I, I want to try to take through this a little bit yeah. slowly. Okay, so here, Jane, I'm, we're going we're gonna to do a, do a okay. dialogue, right? Okay, we're okay. going to dialogue. We're having a racial dialogue. Oh, okay. so, <laughs> so Mark Meadows, earlier in his career, was out there making birther jokes right. about Barack Obama. Exactly. So a person seeing clips of those jokes, you might say, that's that racist. Guy, that's racist, right? So a defense that Mark Meadows, it seemed to me like he was offering to that was, look, I can see how you would see that and be like, ah, this Mark Meadows guy, like this is a bad guy. He hates black people, right? But I am telling you that in my heart and in my bones, right, in the non-visible interior of Mark Meadows, I have nothing but positive sentiments toward African-Americans. And I apologize for those jokes, but also you have to understand that I was running for office at the time, right? So that's like, well, you might look at Barack Obama from 2008 saying, uh, I believe marriage is between a, a man and a woman. And you might say, oh, man, like, what's with this homophobe? And I might offer as a defense of that, like, but look, you got to understand, right? He was playing a savvy political game. Like, he put on the bench the Supreme Court justices who created marriage equality. He flip-flopped in a timely manner. He appointed pro-gay people. And all the evidence from his personal life and his interactions is that he's totally fine with LGBT people. And like, there's a difference between Mark Meadows cynically playing to racism to win a primary and Mark Meadows being a racist. 
So the issue here, and I've said this multiple times, is that if you are willing to cynically engage in racism, um, there's something uh, Ken White on Twitter uh, who goes by Popat at has, Popat at Popat goes has something I believe he calls the law of goats, and the law of goats. I will put it in the uh, most PG way possible: is that um, if you have sex with a goat, even if you are having sex as a, with a goat, ironically or cynically or for political purposes or because you want to trigger the libs, you are still having sex with a goat. That is what you are doing. And I I feel as if in this particular instance, if you are engaging in racism for cynical political purposes, that is not better. It raises more questions about one's moral judgment or character. And obviously, I have not thoroughly examined Mark Meadows' skeleton to find (laughs) his, like, racist femur or something like that. But I do think that the willingness to have engaged in birtherism— the same birtherism in which President Trump engaged for a million bazillion years, that that does show a willingness to engage in racist acts. And if you say that you're doing it just because you want to win an election, honestly, I was saying this a little bit. I'm like, give me like the moral temerity of an Orly Tates who genuinely believed it. This cynicism that it takes to engage in something as racist as birtherism, but just to say, like, I was doing it to to try and win an election, that's, that's disgusting. I mean, fundamentally, this is a matter of, do you think that racism is only unforgivable as if it's, like, a worldview or a motivator? Uh, and if you can make an intentionalist argument that you were motivated by something else that, you know, that forgives you, or do you see racism as a matter of praxis, right? Like, is a racist something you are or is racism something that one does? Right. And, you know, Tlaib is making the the argument that it's fundamentally the second. I think that in general, we've seen that that is a more useful way to think about it because, A, it in theory avoids stigmatizing individual people, B, it focuses on the consequences of the action. It's like if Mark Meadows is in front of a group of people who genuinely do believe that blacks are inferior and he doesn't, but he tells them, LOL, Barack Obama was born in Kenya. Do they know that he doesn't think that blacks right. are inferior? Like, no, exactly. of course. That doesn't actually matter. In all respects in which that was a meaningful thing for him to say, it was a racist thing for him to say. And so, you know, the other reason that talking about racism in acts matters is because you can theoretically get people to you know, to like a point of improvement or redemption, right? Like if if this is just a bad habit that you have or some other practice that like you, you know, you do because you don't know any better or you do because you need to be kind of told the right way to behave, you can do that. And like, it's not that Mark Meadows is forever stained by having said that Barack Obama was, you know, by having made a birther joke. Like, that's not the point of talking about racism in Mark Meadows. The point of it is to acknowledge the extent to which he and, frankly, by extension, the current iteration of the Republican Party have used race as a political tool and to talk about that as a factor in continued racial inequity. Right. Right. But so I think that that, you know, distinction, right? So like acts versus people, uh, sort of subjectivist versus external view uh, of these things, you know, is valid. And these are important kinds of contributions to make to the debate. At the same time, I do think it's true that people on the left 
sometimes engage in a, um, uh, I guess what we would call in, in philosophy class, a, a fallacy of equivocation on this point, where we have a broad social consensus that racism is bad. So like if you ask people in a very sharply polarized political dynamic, right, if Mark Meadows is up there, if Donald Trump is up there, if Mitch McConnell is up there and you're like, hey, man, like what's up with racism? They'd be like, that's bad, right? And everybody agrees. So in that sense, like, yes, to call somebody racist, to say they are doing something racist is to say they are doing something bad. Is to say they are doing something that is by consensus bad, that is outside the bounds of partisan political contestation, right? Because we disagree about many things and we have agreed to be colleagues up here on the dais, but we agree that racism is bad and unacceptable practice. So when you point to something that people are doing and you seek to apply the level label racist to it. What you are trying to say is that this thing belongs outside yes. the zone of conflict. But frequently, the idea of the like sophisticated lefty academic idea of racism gets applied to things that are clearly inside the zone of legitimate contestation. So somebody will say the mortgage interest tax deduction is a racist practice because of its disparate impact on African-Americans. Or they will say, um, as I think it was Elizabeth Warren got into some political hot water when she said the criminal justice system is racist. And then when a bunch of Massachusetts law enforcement officials, some of whom are African-American, got mad at her, they pinwheeled back mm -hmm. into like a discussion that you might have on a college campus you know, about like, look, I'm not saying that the Massachusetts State Police is like all composed of bad people who harbor deep-seated racial prejudices. I am saying that there are structural inequities in the system. But in those cases, it's not necessarily the point is wrong, but you are deliberately making a controversial point. Yeah, I, I definitely. And I think that so, to some extent um, that is people trying to condemn racial inequity in in strong and moral terms because they believe it is a moral issue and to a certain extent that is something that progressive activists are trying to use like you know people who believe who firmly believe that current you know housing policy is unacceptable because it perpetuates racial inequities are to a certain extent deliberately trying to apply the word racist to render it unacceptable. Uh, and it's just not clear that that works. But I think that, frankly, the dynamic that you've pointed out is key to why we've settled on intentionality. Because if, you know, in order to draw the line between what is legitimate and what is illegitimate in partisan contestation, what we've seen is that if you can construct a race neutral framework for why you are arguing for what you're arguing for. Like if you say it's not about suppressing the black vote, it's that I think that it's really important to have, you know, to bend over backwards to prevent voter fraud. If you say it's not about, you know, not wanting Latino immigrants, it's because I believe really strongly in the neutral rule of law. Like those are things that have been decided, OK, that that is an acceptable way to argue about it. And frankly, you know, when I say that facts are often a stalking horse for values um, on immigration and otherwise, 
that's the dynamic that creates that, right? It's a lot of people who are making arguments based on facts that aren't necessarily what's motivating their position because that's what's deemed as acceptable in the public sphere. Right, exactly. Whereas if they were to talk about like a certain amount of cultural discomfort or want to talk about, well, it's in my interest to prevent people who are going to vote for the other guy from voting, that would be... They people understand that that would be seen that like they could get accused of being racists and they don't want to do that. Right. Exactly. And it's interesting, though, because as our country has attempted to make, quote unquote, racism anathema, we've defined it down so that you can say, you know, you have people who are engaging in extremely racist acts. And then what happens is that non-white folks, or specifically in these examples, African-Americans say, hey, that's racist. And then those people respond, no, no, I would never do that. Like, I would never be racist while I post this picture on my Facebook wall about how Michelle Obama is a man or is an ape, or I'm William Regnery and run an actual white nationalist think tank, but he's not a racist because he's just a racial realist. And you even see that on kind of the white nationalist far right, the idea of like, we can't say, you know, we're not racist, we're just racial realists, because they recognize, as Dara put it, that if they can even put those views, you know, kind of the, when they get people get into kind of the race and IQ discussion, if they can put those views in what they believe to be a value-neutral context, they can engage in kind of this wider conversation while attempting to kind of hide the fact of like, oh, why are you engaging in this wider conversation? Right. Why are you doing this? And this is where it gets really tricky, because this This is where the left looks at what the people who are trying hard not to call themselves racists are arguing and looks at everybody else arguing that and goes, this is associated with these racists. This is a racist view. Like, I think it's really important to note that when we're talking about these kind of ideological, like, parallel construction, right, in the same way that a prosecutor sometimes, you know, has evidence that might not have been obtained through, like, means that are going to hold up to a Fourth Amendment challenge in court, but they can kind of take that information and, like, come up with an alternate way that they would have gotten that that would have been legal. Like, it's kind of the same dynamic. Um, that doesn't mean that everyone is who ex- who espouses the racially, you know, the facially neutral view right. is doing that. Like, not everyone is is seeing this as a fig leaf. It's just that some the people who genuinely believe that are getting lumped in with the people who, you know, may or may not genuinely believe it are getting lumped in with the people who have not thought much about it. Exactly. But so, I do think that there is an irreducible element of subjectivism to the concept of racism and that the effort to make it purely externalist doesn't really fully make sense. And I think the voter suppression is a good example there, right? So, you know, an argument that will be made about this, right, is that to seek to disenfranchise a group of African-Americans because they are African-American is both for for constitutional reasons unacceptable, but also for a sort of um, moral ethical reason, right? That is like you are saying I am putting these black people outside the bounds of citizenship, right? They do not count as Americans. Um, And then, you know, you can make a counterpoint that like, no, I don't have any impure racial motive in doing this. I'm just – just a guy out here trying to win an election, man. You know, like, you know what, I, what I'm what i saying? And then you might make a comeback and be like, look, I, I sort of don't care 
Like what exactly is in your hearts and bones here? Like the fact is you are disenfranchising black people and that is disadvantageous to black people. And I feel like that argument makes sense. I I think everybody understands where it's coming from. But because of the way partisan politics works, if you try to disenfranchise college students, if you try to make it so that University of Wisconsin students can't vote, that also is objectively harmful to the interests of black people living in the state of Wisconsin and objectively harmful to the interests of African-Americans nationwide because those college students at the University of Wisconsin who are overwhelmingly white are going to vote for the same candidates, right, for Tammy Baldwin, for Tony Evers, who black people in Milwaukee are voting for. But I think it would be kind of crazy to say that, like, moves to make it harder. It would be, I think, very respectable to say that moves to make it harder for college students to vote are bad for, like, reasons of equal democracy and citizenship. But to call them racist because it's objectively contrary to the interests of black people feels like a wild stretch to me. And like and like an, an abuse of the moral force of racism. As a matter of political science, though, I think that this is like this actually gets to a really important question because the flip side of, well, it's probably not racist to prevent college students from voting just because it would objectively harm the interests of black voters is like if you're a North Carolina state legislator, for example, and you're an idiot who doesn't understand how discovery works in lawsuits. And so you write all these emails about how great it is that your redistricting plan disenfranchises black voters because they would be voting for the other guy. If you're not trying to keep them from voting because they're black, but because they would vote from the other guy, isn't that just a sense of partisan competition? And like possibly, right? The root problem here appears to be that we are in a situation where one of our national parties does not see non-white people as an important voting, you know, as, as an important part of its coalition. And to the contrary, sees them as a key part of the other side's coalition that therefore should probably be tamped down whenever possible. Like, that can't be healthy in its own right. And it itself makes it extremely difficult to talk about where the boundary between partisan contestation and things that are objectively perpetuating racial inequities are. And I I agree. I I think that the moral force argument is a good point. Um, I think that, you know, in general, specificity of language is great. And so if if we're trying to talk specifically about, you know, current racial inequities, if we're trying to talk about the legacies of particular past policies, like the reparations debate has already gotten super, super Uh, confused because people aren't necessarily sure whether they're talking about reparations for slavery or reparations for Jim Crow and redlining or reparations for kind of the sum of injustices that have been visited upon African-Americans over the, you know, 400 years of colonization and settlement. Like, it's good to talk specifically about current things. It's good to genealogically think about the legacies of past harms. It is good to talk about the problems that come from, you know, white supremacist ideologies and mindsets. Maybe the right answer is to separate all that from talking about racism, but it doesn't get us away from the fact that, like, none of those things are things the Republican Party is currently incentivized to deal with. And as a, to the contrary, they're incentivized to, like, 
not to to dismiss them and fight against any attempts to ameliorate them. And I think we see that overall that I would argue that the even the idea of racism as a moral force, I feel like has been diluted time and time and time again, because that works as a moral force as long as you're willing to accept it as one. But if you're showing up in blackface in a yearbook and then trying to argue about how like let me moonwalk away from this to show that I am not, in fact, racist. I feel like that that's an obfuscation. The issue with racism is not just that it's a, a political cudgel. The issue with racism is that it's evil and has resulted in the destruction of communities and lives in this country for centuries and still in many respects does. And I think that it's particularly challenging when it gets into this conversation about, you know, its applicability as a moral force when people don't want to accept it, when it can be a moral force for Republicans, but if Democrats are accused of engaging in racist behavior, as you know, a Democrat was in Maryland for using a, a racial slur about a region of Maryland, you know, she went with the kind of like, I would never say those words, but I have said those words. And that, that kind of obfuscation of the moral force, I feel like, is a real concern in many respects, not just politically, but kind of culturally as well. Let's, so, let's take, take another break. break. And I want to I bring this back to Michael Cohn, actually. Okay. Hi, we're Visible. We're the wireless company with nothing to hide. Seriously. Hidden fees? We don't have them. Annual contracts? Not our thing. Great wireless on just one line? Now that's more like it. Get unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon for just $25 a month. Taxes and fees included. That's right. $25 a month? Every month. Sorry, hidden fees. We're just not that into you. Sometimes the choice is just Visible. Switch today at Visible.com. Rate with service on the Visible plan. For additional terms and network management practices, see Visible.com. You know, I don't I don't want to do both sizing for the sake of both sizing. Um, but I think it's worth pointing out that, like, the whole reason that we're talking about this this right. week as opposed to every other week, it's not like race is only relevant in American life sometimes, but... Michael Cohn brought this up as a way of discrediting the personal character of Donald Trump by calling him a racist, right? Like nothing that Michael Cohn was actually on the stand to say that the House Oversight Committee is looking into was about race at all. Cohn threw in, in addition to kind of giving in his prepared remarks, these tantalizing stories that were relevant to various House oversight lines of inquiry, the idea that Trump, in addition to being a con man and a liar, was a racist and, you know, kind of and talked about the the Obama shithole countries thing and a few other anecdotes. Like, Michael Cohn is obviously not a paradigm of wokeness here, right? Um, dude is a middle-aged white dude from the outer boroughs. Um, but... Both his temptation to do that and then when called out by Mark Meadows in, you know, who was pointing to Lynn Patton, he responded by saying, well, I wouldn't work for shouldn't work for a racist either. I'm the son of a Holocaust survivor, which like honestly was seen as a mic drop moment in some quarters. And I would urge anyone who thought that to kind of reconsider why they think it's not super not cool to say this black woman says Donald Trump's not a racist, therefore he isn't. But it is cool to say I'm the son of a Holocaust survivor and I say that he is. Like, it's yeah. exactly the same by a lot or biographical effort to say, you know, I am going to pronounce damnatio and I can do this because my family history says that I am an arbiter of, you know, what is and isn't racist. Like, the temptation to talk about racism in politically unhelpful ways is by no means limited to 
you know, conservatives to the right to any of that. It's it's a convenient way to do things. It's just that, you know, it does. I don't know. I feel I'm, I keep coming back to this question of moral force. Like, what is the right answer to get people to look at things analytically uh, while making sure that things are not kind of well, well, preventing I, it from being something that doesn't have human impact. I think the distinction still matters here, right? Like if we think about Sarah and I were podcasting about Amy Klobuchar and her treatment of her staff. And, you know, the concern there is not that like Amy Klobuchar is potentially like systematically disenfranchising like staffers as a group or something, but that something has been revealed about her character, right, and how she deals with people who are in a subordinate position vis-a-vis her, and that this insight into her character should give us some cause to worry about her behavior as a policymaker, right? And so one argument you could make about Donald Trump, the argument that Michael Cohn was advancing with his stories about racist jokes, is that Donald Trump harbors ill sentiments toward African-American people. And Cohn was also making the argument about himself that as a descendant of Holocaust survivors, like many um, uh, Jewish people of that rough demographic, right, that he takes seriously the threat that invidious personal prejudices in general can pose in life, right? That like um, Jews were happily assimilated in Germany and getting along, but there was a lot of prejudice against Jewish people and it really got out of hand, right? And now we understand that this is bad, that the purity, you know, and I, I think about like my grandparents, right, who by the end of their lives would not qualify as like woke, unracist people, uh, but who in the 50s and 60s were like absolutely full-throated supporters of the civil rights movement as they understood it because they understood the purity taboos of the Jim Crow South to be close cousins to European anti-Semitism, right? And then like later though, if you're talking to them about like school district lines and housing policy, eh, right? And like, that's a very classic story about like northern white ethnics, right? Boston, for example. Um, You know, and everywhere, right? That's like a big part of American politics is that kind of turn. And I think you see it in the ambiguity around Trump and race, because the idea that Donald Trump could be like racist in the sense of like, like really bad in personal behavior, right? That could give some people pause about Trump in a way that simply saying that like Trump favors ideas that systematically advantage white people, that might give them like the opposite of pause about Donald Trump. Like that's what they want. Like in essence, like Trump's claim about himself would be that like he champions ordinary by which he would mean white Americans against elites here on this podcast who like want him to tear down like social systems that provide you with good schools and property values and safe streets and and things like that. And and I'm always reminded of a, a study Vox wrote up earlier where it was like informing people about the racial inequities in the criminal justice system made them less supportive of reform 
rather than more, that like the fact that the American criminal justice system is very expensive and extremely punitive was something that people had started to worry about. But when you told them it was also very disparate in its racial impact, that didn't make them think like, and now it's really bad. It made them think like, oh, maybe this isn't as big a problem as I thought. And I just think that like, it's hard to have it both ways on these topics, right? Like systematic advantage and disadvantage are real phenomena that like deserve to be discussed. But what what we always want is like the political clout. I think there's something to be said um, when talking about Trump or talking about pretty much anyone that like there, I think we've been having this discussion when we talk about Mark Meadows or others that there's this idea that racism would be displayed the same way both internally and externally. Mm-hmm. So, you know, Trump, for example, his particular brand of what I would say internal racism is the same thing that means that he was very surprised that members of the Congressional Black Caucus had did not know Ben Carson because he just kind of assumed that they would all know each other. Or the kind of the internal racism that one might have when one is someone who has talked a lot about how he only wants Jewish people to control his money or you know, who did what he did regarding the Central Park Five. But his externalized racism, I think that that actually gets back to the Meadows point, is that this is someone who tweeted about how there will never be another black president again because Barack Obama was bad. Or the kind of externalized racism of not just, because I think that, you know, when we get into disparate impact of different actions, I think it's it's worthwhile kind of talking about how we phrase that in terms of racism. But then time and time and time again in which the externalized racism and especially the cynical use of externalized racism for political reasons, mm-hmm. like birtherism was, and you know, and we can see this time and time again by the fact that Trump kept saying things that like he'd flown people to Hawaii to go look into Obama's birth certificate or done all of these things. And then if you'll remember, during the presidential campaign, he held a press conference and was basically like, well, that's over now. Bye. And that was an expression of cynical externalized racism. That's not what you're going to get from like the Richard Spencer of the world, mm-hmm. but that is the wielding of racism f- for cynical, personal, and political purposes. And I think that there's something to be said about how internal and external racism don't both need to look the same. And we talk about racism as or saying that someone is a racist as if someone if they're a racist cannot also be many other things i'm always reminded there's a diner in dc that's been around for like a million years florida avenue grill and there are pictures of people who have gone there and there's like a table at which martin luther king planned the march on washington there's a little plaque and someone who loved to go to florida avenue grill was Strom Thurmond. And there is a picture that he signed where it talks about how much he loves the cornbread and how it's so great there. And Strom Thurmond is probably best remembered as a like staunch segregationist who fought for Jim Crow for a very long time. Mm-hmm. But then in the early 1970s, he uh, hired a black staffer and like kept talking about how his segregationist views were more about like federal intrusion into American life. So... You know, Strom Thurmond had an internal racism, which was 
I really like it when the African-American employees of this predominantly black diner make cornbread, but I would very much rather they did not go to school with anyone I know or my children. But I am also, you know, he he then had a mixed-race child out of wedlock, but that's neither here nor there. But then his externalized racism was engaged in fighting for Jim Crow for, and you know, changing political parties over the issue and, you know, kind of engaging in this use of, as I said, this use of racism as a cynical political ploy and then deciding that he that since that no longer worked, he was going to shift away from that. And I think it, it's very worthwhile recognizing that people are multifaceted. People contain, contain multitudes and as do racists, as do people who engage in racism and as do people who engage in racism in these political sense, you know, in these political sensibilities. And I think being able to talk about that, being able to put racist actions in context and racist people in context, I think is extremely worthwhile. But it, it really bothers me a time again where you have this idea that like, you know, oh, my external cynical racist actions don't say anything about my internal racism when it clearly does. Wait, so there, I almost want to let you drop the mic on that. But now that you've brought up Shaw. Yes. I want to think of what this is a neighborhood where Jane and I live. Yeah. I, I, I want to think about the opposite case of this. Right. OK. Which is that so. Our neighborhood at this point in time, mostly white, large minority population. Right. The public schools are majority minority, though. I speak all the time to white parents around the neighborhood who have a clear reluctance to send their kids to the majority black public schools. Yes. This, this is an ongoing phenomenon. Uh, there's been some really terrific reporting in the New York Times on this issue, especially in New York. And if I were to suggest that it seemed to me that this behavior was motivated by prejudice about black children, what they would come back at me with, I think, is not like my black friend, because these are woke liberals, they would come back with the fact that their externalizing behavior is extremely anti-racist, right? That like they like support criminal justice reform and they want to undo funding inequities and like 80 million like good anti-racist political stances. But it actually seems... um, quite relevant, telling and damning to me when people are like willing to have lots of woke political views, but like won't actually do the thing. Exactly. And I think we've seen this time and time again, specifically, you know, I'm thinking of of people on the left where they're very much, it's kind of like, I am extremely interested in Black Lives Matter. I'm extremely engaged in the discussions about racism in American society. But I, I draw the line at my kid because you know, I think that that is that internalized and externalized, you know, racism or kind of views of race in a sense. And, you know, I think that it's I think that that's something, you know, I mentioned a little bit earlier that that cuts really close for a lot of people. And you'll notice how uncomfortable that very discussion can get, because the I, when we talk about racism as a moral force, that moral force can be embarrassing and painful for people to whom, you know, who are kind of engaged in it. And then, you you know, you see those same people who are just like, you know, it's not, you know, I just want my kids to go to high, you know, 
good schools. And, you know, then you get into, well, what does a good school look like? And, you know, how people have these conversations. And you see this a little bit, um, I'm, you know, on the right, I'm reminded of a really terrific piece that actually wound up in a uh, blog that I, I can't find it now. If someone could find it, I would be very much grateful. A woman who she's, you know, a pro-life activist, and she wrote a piece in The Federalist about how, you know, if you're pro-life, it's very important that you listen to Black Lives Matter and stop just responding about like, well, black people abort their children or something like that. Like, why are you not listening to us? And she was saying that, you know, she got responses from, you know, friends and from people within the pro-life movement who are like, how dare you say that? How how dare you bring this up? Because it made them uncomfortable. And I think that that engagement with, you know, thinking about race or racism and it, it, how uncomfortable it gets for people and how people want to disengage or push it away onto someone else or foist it onto someone else who they are not and especially when it gets personal, when it's about your views on abortion or about your ki- where your kids go to school. Yeah, I mean, I, right. Like this, this gets back to Elijah Cummings trying yeah. to make sure that it, like that he, that Mark Meadows knows that he, Elijah Cummings, feels his pain. Right. Um, like the inevitable tendency of conversations about racism in 2019 is that they become about the feelings of the person who was accused of racism, and that is not a super productive way to have a public debate. Like, you know, I think I've I've been persuaded by Matt's argument that, like, there is a reason that that is such a powerful thing and maybe it's a good idea to, like, respect that. But, you know, I just think, I think that it's worth pointing out, one, that if we talked, you know, if we did the same analysis to, like, the white parents of Shaw that we were doing to the Democratic and Republican uh, you know, that we were doing to Rashida Tlaib and Elijah Cummings earlier in this episode, right? If we were talking about like, well, of course, you know, this group of people have a certain set of advantages that they wish to preserve and they do not want to, you know, give up their personal advantages for the sake of other people. Like, that is a neutral thing that we can say. Nobody is going to, that, that doesn't sound very controversial. But when it's, well, the reason that you have some unearned privileges is because of, you know, your whiteness and what that means in America, it becomes, well, but I don't deserve to, I didn't do anything wrong, so I don't deserve to give these privileges up. It becomes a very, like, why should I be punished for things that I have no control over? Which, you know, I I think that it's an understandable response from a materialist politics viewpoint, but it then becomes, why would you say that I am trying to hurt your child, which is not the best way to do things? And that that gets multiplied when we're talking about the Stroms Thurmond yeah. and like Mark's Meadow of the world, right? Where it's like they're speaking as individuals who have individually hurt feelings, but they're not in Congress because of the purity of their feelings. Right. Like they're in Congress to exercise power over the lives of other people. And, yeah. you know— it, those two aren't it's not a super strong distinction because to talk about racial inequity is to talk about power and if we can like turn this into some operational help for engaging in racial dialogue in 2019 a good starting point especially for white people is if you are trying to turn this into a conversation about your feelings right just like think about it as 
try to think about it as a simple question of distribution of resources, as a simple question of economics, as like whatever it takes to get this into a place where you don't feel personally impugned. And then you can come back to your feelings on your own time and figure out why it meant so much to you to get, you know, like why that hurt so much. That is something that you can do internally that doesn't actually require another person's validation. Also, I would note, because I I will never run for Congress or hold any political power whatsoever so I can say relatively what I want that, you you know. Because you're in for ANC. Exactly. We we need you. No. The feelings of the people, you know, the the feelings of Mark Meadow are not the top priority in this discussion. And it's very interesting how the conversation that they were having shifted to let's make Mark Meadow feel better rather than why did Mark Meadow decide to bring this, you know, African-American woman HUD employee into this room to stand silently and be and a prop of sorts to show that someone else wasn't racist because this person said they weren't but didn't say at the time because she stood there not saying anything as a prop. There we go. All right. Uh, Thanks, guys. Uh, Thanks to everybody out there listening. Thanks to our sponsors. Thanks, of course, to our producer, Jeffrey Geld. We can um, continue the conversation in the Weeds Facebook group. uh, And the Weeds will be back on Tuesday. In U.S. working forests, or forest land carefully managed to provide a steady, renewable supply of wood for daily use, more than one billion trees are planted every year, and forestry experts protect and manage hundreds of millions of acres. Working forests have been sustainably managed for decades. How? It's simple. They plant more trees than they harvest. Learn more at workingforestsinitiative.com. Hi, we're Visible. We're the wireless company with nothing to hide. Seriously. Hidden fees? We don't have them. Annual contracts? Not our thing. Great wireless on just one line? Now that's more like it. Get unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon for just $25 a month. Taxes and fees included. That's right. $25 a month? Every month. Sorry, hidden fees. We're just not that into you. Sometimes the choice is just Visible. Switch today at Visible.com. Rate with service on the Visible plan. For additional terms and network management practices, see Visible.com.